Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, for the first time in more than 500 days, fully vaccinated Americans start making non-essential trips across the border. Many are ecstatic with the changes, as many businesses rely heavily on tourism. But the question remains, is it safe? A Chinese court has rejected the appeal of Robert Schellenberg, who is facing the death penalty in China for drug trafficking. Many say the move is an attempt by Beijing to pressure Canada in influencing the Meng Wanzhou case. Political science professor Elliot Tepper joins us to discuss that. And a new report on climate change released by the UN is warning that global warming is dangerously close to being out of control. What do we need to do immediately to make necessary changes? It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Finally, yesterday, uh, the border became open. This is for Americans coming into our country. Uh, Canadian border land crossings are once again open to travelers from the United States. For the first time in more than 500 days, Americans can now make non-essential trips to the country. As for the demand, well, lineups all day yesterday at the border crossings. Global Sean O'Shea was in Niagara Falls yesterday where he's watching the stream of traffic from the south. The Rainbow Bridge into Niagara Falls bumper to bumper all day long. Some sat in the queue for two hours. It's welcome traffic that border cities haven't seen in a long time. Typically 25% of the tourists come from the U.S. and they represent 50% of the revenue. So we've taken a huge hit with the border closed. It's been devastating. We've been closed for 509 days. The duty-free store here seeing some life again. It's just wonderful to finally see us open and our staff finally getting employed again. Some Canadians were among those celebrating. David Layton's daughter had been boarding in Buffalo with her swim team. She's had a somewhat normal teenage life the last three months with her swimming and her friends and her coaches. Normally, Evie Layton would cross the border several times a week for training. That's still a long way off. You can't do just day trips with the restrictions the way that they are right now. Between testing and that non-essential travel to the U.S. by land crossing isn't possible yet. What is possible? The opportunity for Americans to take trips here again. Trips once taken for granted. Well, so are we over the hump here? Is uh, happy days uh, here again as, as far as Americans uh, coming into the border are concerned, across the border, rather? Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Thomas Tenkate. Uh, Thomas is a professor at the School of Occupational Health and uh, at uh, Public Health, that is, at Ryerson University. Professor, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you very much, Bill. It's great to be with you again. Thank you. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the logistics of this. Uh, and, and again, even through the euphoria, I guess, of a lot of uh, Canadian business folks who are gladly welcoming the Americans to come back over here, uh, the other side is, is not happening, of course. Uh, the, the U.S. is still reticent uh, to actually open the border up to Canadians, especially for one-day trips, what they call non-essential travel. The question a lot of people are still asking, I guess, Professor, is it safe uh, with what's going on with the protocol that's in place? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You like from my perspective and a public health perspective, you have to think about what is the risk to both the, the traveller themselves as well as the community here in Canada. And I think under the restrictions and and the protocols they have in place, the risk is relatively low for both the individual and for the community, uh, given the fact that uh, people have to have their uh, or be fully vaccinated, have a negative test before they come, a negative test after they come and uh, plus the uh, Arrive Canada app and website that, uh, you know, speeds up that processing as well and, you know, does this medical screening. So so I think the reality is that if someone was infected between the time they had the negative test before they left the US and when they came to Canada and then, uh, you know, we, we would pick them up pretty quickly and so you would think that they wouldn't have much time to, to infect you know, members of the community here. So, so I think overall, 
you know, uh, the the risk is, is pretty low, and it is a and and in the broad scheme of things, it's probably a good starting point for for opening the border. Uh, just listening to Sean O'Shea from Global News with his report yesterday from Niagara Falls, he was talking to some of the Americans that finally did make it over, and they said it was about a two-hour wait at the border to clear customs and come over to this side of the border, which is almost the incubation period, I guess. Uh, but be that as it may, I guess the other element to this, Professor, uh, you just outlined uh, exactly what they had to go through to, to be able to be, gain access to, to Canada. Is it too onerous? So, you know, this test here, this test here, uh, proof of vaccination. Uh, are a lot of people just going to say it's not worth it for a day trip yeah yeah definitely it, it's you know the the procedures that are in place are really i think uh, designed for people who want to come for for a relatively extended period of time because otherwise it's uh really too difficult for for the day trip uh option so but but you know if you if you think about where you know if, if we want to if we want to start opening the border and we want to be as cautious as possible this is about as cautious as cautious as you can get i think so so i think you know from that perspective it's it's a it's a first step and uh you know what what the you know the approach will be is to now just you know over the next few weeks you know just monitor cases and uh and both cases in the community uh as well as monitor the uh the testing you know both uh you know once the tests once people get here and you know what the uh you know whether you know what rate are positive versus negative and and that will give a good indication of whether or not this is uh this is working or not working what, what i was interested as in, i was talking to some folks about the protocol here and what's going in place and, and you outlined exactly what what has to happen but the canadian border services agency uh is also uh requiring visitors to use what they call the arrive canada app arrive can app uh on the online portal to upload their vaccination details so, so that they're readily available uh when asked about why the U.S. government is not doing this, apparently they said they haven't even developed an app for this yet, which kind of indicates to me that they're not in any rush to open the border up at all. At least it seems that way anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it, it definitely seems that way in regard to the U.S., like the, from a reciprocal perspective. I, you know, I don't think that they're that uh, eager to open the border, uh, either the northern or the southern border. Uh, and so, so I think it's definitely, you know, Canadians – Thinking that they'll travel for non-essential purposes into the U.S. is, you know, I think they have to wait quite a bit longer. And you know, and and given the uh, the case, the rates, the case rates that are happening in the U.S. and particularly in in certain locations uh, is is pretty worrying. So so I would sort of say to people, don't, you know, it's not really something to think about for for quite a while yet. You, I think, just touched on a very contentious point, which may actually be one of the underlying causes here, the southern border. Uh, they, I, the, at least one New York congressman is of, of the opinion that if they open the border to Canadians, that there's going to be a great deal of pressure to open the, the Mexican border at the same time, uh, which, as we all know, is a, is a great big can of worms for an awful lot of American politicians right now for a variety of reasons. Is, is that the underlying cause, do you think? I definitely think that, that you know, that, that that has to play into the decision making. Uh, you know, you would you would like to think that uh, they they could, if they wanted to, uh, open the the border with Canada, with, whilst still keeping the uh, southern border closed. From the from a public health perspective, if you look at you know how the you know Canada versus say Mexico and you know other countries in South America uh, are handling the uh, handling COVID and and what the numbers of cases are. Are in those countries, and you would have to say that Canada is doing a lot better, and so the the risk of pe- 
risk to the community, say in the US, of people coming from Canada is a lot less uh, in regard to trans potential transmission than people coming from the from the south. So so that's you know that you know there, there's both the political and the public health perspectives I think for that. Well, I think, as you mentioned, uh, we'll be monitoring, and uh, certainly authorities are going to be monitoring this over the next couple of days to just see if it's going to have any impact at all. Professor, always a pleasure to get your perspective. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks very much, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Professor Thomas Tenkake uh, from uh, Ryerson University with his read on what's going on. So what about the impact on, on the Canadian economy? Well, uh, Betty DeSero, who's the mayor of Niagara-on-the-Lake, uh, says she's not really expecting an influx of fully vaccinated Americans. Uh, says she's doubtful that many are going to go through the hassle of getting negative tests just for a one-day trip. Uh, the mayor is thinking the majority of visitors from the U.S. are probably those that, as Professor mentioned, are going to be coming up here to check on maybe some land that they own up here or possibly uh, to go and check on, uh, well, loved ones and maybe even family members, but not expecting a big rush. Here's the mayor. I don't think when the government said, okay, we're going to allow the borders to be open as of August 9th, but, you know, you've got to be double vaccinated and have a test within 72 hours. I don't think anybody rushed to the phone to book anything, but reservations are trickling in now. And I know the hotels, they're getting a lot of people from within the province even coming. So I think the um, Americans will play a role, but maybe not as large as they usually do. Niagara the Lake Mayor uh, Betty DeSero, who's uh, skeptical that it's going to have a huge impact, at least in the short term anyway. Uh, joining the conversation is uh, Maury DiMorizio, who is the Chief Operating Officer of City Cruises in Niagara Falls, which you would hope would going to be one of the beneficiaries of this. Uh, Maury, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us on the program today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Did you get that huge influx that people were anticipating? Is, is, uh, is there a great big rush all of a sudden to, to recreate uh, tourism and in the industry in Niagara Falls? You know, I, I really wish there was. Unfortunately, uh, no, it's business as usual, uh, at least as far as uh, our perspective uh, is, um, you know, from our vantage point. Uh, it's, there, there has been relatively no change uh, in terms of uh, what we're seeing coming across the border. What, what's, talk to us about the capacity issues here. I mean, what, you, what a typical August day would be for you pre-pandemic and where you are today. Oh, I'd love to talk about that. Uh, you know, pre, pre-COVID in August, I mean, uh, you know, typically the August uh, Civic Holiday Long Weekend is, is a, a peak period for us. You know, we would be doing upwards of 25,000, 26,000 passengers a day. Uh, right now, perhaps we're doing, um, you know, five or 6,000 passengers a day, which sounds like a lot, uh, but it, it's largely due to, um, you know, obviously the borders are closed, uh, COVID restrictions, and, and mostly the, the capacity restrictions. We, we still are not able to load our 700-passenger vessels more than say 25 to 30 percent just because of the social distancing requirements Mm. and other uh, regulatory orders uh, that are still in place so we're there's a a bit of inconsistency in the application uh, of the orders with respect to different businesses and attractions and unfortunately we're on the, uh, the 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 smaller side of that interpretation uh, the social distancing is, a, is an element, certainly. And I, and I know there's some controversy about some of the other government policies, too. Uh, some feel much more comfortable if there had been proof of vaccination, and the, and the Premier has said that he doesn't want to go through that. Do you get the sense that there might be a reticence even for some Canadians that say, well, we're not quite sure we want to get into a crowd just yet? Well, you know, what we've been seeing uh, are, are the staycationers. So coming from the east, west, and north of us, uh, all of, from all over Canada, uh, mostly Ontario, uh, some from Quebec, it, it doesn't seem like those folks are uh, apprehensive. I mean, they're wearing their masks, they're, they're sanitizing, they're somewhat distancing when they're in open private, or sorry, open public uh, places. 
but you know when they're when they're in our space, uh, they they largely respect the the distancing requirements, the the mask, the hand sanitizing. So that yeah, it it really is typically Canadian. They're friendly, they're happy, they're you know uh, unnecessarily apologetic, uh, and they're having a good time. <laughs> Because uh, I, I obviously have fond memories of pre-pandemic. I mean, when our kids were younger, we used to every usually around August, as it turned out, we'd go down to Niagara Falls for three, four days sometimes, and stay at one of the great hotels there. And there's there's a multitude of attractions, obviously, to keep everybody busy. But I was always impressed with the number of Americans who came over, even for the day. And uh, it's it's something that I guess is not going to happen anytime soon. The Americans seem quite ready, willing, and able. But uh, as the Niagara Falls mayor just mentioned before you join us on the program, uh, she's skeptical that a lot of people are going to go through all the procedures that are required now just for the sake of a one-day trip oh I, I couldn't agree more um you know we've, we've got some uh hope or light at the end of the tunnel with respect to opening up the border but if you really read the fine print uh the border's open yes however uh you know take a typical family of four uh coming across the border it's going to cost them you know, anywhere from four to eight hundred dollars, depending on their their medical benefit coverage, uh, for the PCR test, and then they've got to pre-plan because it's got to be seventy-two hours in advance of their trip. Uh, coupled with them, they have to upload uh, all the vaccination records into um, the uh, the Arrive Camp app, uh, and then wait on the bridge. Another handful of dollars to get across the bridge. So, I think that we're not going to see a, a huge rush of folks that come come across the border. Of course, we welcome our American friends to the South, you know, we're, we're neighbors by chance, friends by choice. Um, and we always uh, appreciate um, those tourists that come to visit us. And they play a huge part uh, in, in Niagara Falls with respect to the percentage of Americans that do come and visit uh, that, that cross the border, uh, whether it's, it's you know, the, the rubber tire market or they're flying in. Uh, it, it represents probably, you know, 50, 55 percent of the, the tourism industry in Niagara Falls. So uh, we, we, we miss them and we welcome them back and we hope that we can see them back in full force in, in the future. The contrast, of course, is, is listening to Sean O'Shea from Global News with his reporting. Sean was down in Niagara Falls all day yesterday uh, reporting on what's going on, and he said there were long lineups, which indicates that there is interest, uh, but as to whether or not these people got through the border and just kept on driving to their place up in Muskoka or went to visit family, I guess uh, time will tell in situations like that. But he also talked to a, fo- a couple of folks, one from South Carolina and I think the other one from Illinois that he had on his reporting, uh, who specifically came to, to visit Niagara Falls and said, hey, we've always wanted to to go there this is as good a time as any to try to get going so i, I guess hope springs eternal here maury that, that maybe those numbers are going to pick up eventually oh i have no doubt that they will i mean uh, we, we are going to see a, a pre-pandemic level it's just going to take a little bit of time for the dust to settle uh for the rules the regs uh you know provincial federal orders borders all those things and even people's nerves to calm down uh and we'll, we'll definitely get back i mean obviously it's not going to stay this way uh it, it cannot stay this way so yeah we're we're our eyes are on 2022 uh, and beyond for seeing those pre-pandemic numbers. Yeah, the reality here is, I mean, we're talking about August 10th as we, you and I are speaking right now, and uh, I, I don't want to paint a gloomy picture, but, I mean, the tourist season's almost over. I mean, after Labor Day, you guys don't shut down, uh, but the numbers just aren't going to be the same even in usual times. Yeah, you're correct. We'll, we'll continue operating. Uh, typically, we operate till the end of uh, November. Mm-hmm. Um, not sure if that's going to happen this year. We'll keep our eyes on, on the traffic and make sure that, uh, it, so long as guests are in market, we will continue to operate and, and support our partners in market. Uh, you know, it's not just all about us. We appreciate that this is a team sport uh, in tourism that we all need to be uh, healthy and operating in order for it to be a success. So uh, we'll keep operating as long as uh, folks are in market. But yeah, the, the, the season is, is pretty much, I mean, we're, we're not um, holding our breath for any uh, great saviors 
uh, of numbers to come through uh, for this season. I mean, it is what it is. It's done. Uh, we're just playing out the part uh, and preparing for next year. Uh, fingers crossed. I hope things do pick up for you, even in the last four or five weeks here. And, and as you say, even after Labor Day, uh, as folks get a little more comfortable with this. And uh, and I'm still holding up that there's going to be a bit of a change in government policy to try to loosen restrictions a little bit, too. And that certainly would help. Uh, Maury, congratulations on this. It's, it's as you say, it's not the, the euphoric start that a lot of people were waiting for, but it's it's a good first step anyway as we try to get back to, to where we need to be in a situation like that. Uh, hang in there, and uh, hopefully you have a better days ahead. But thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. Take care. Maury Maurizio, who is the Chief Operating Officer of City Cruises in Niagara Falls. And, uh, well, it's a trickle right now, but uh, at least it's, it's a trickle. For the last 500 days, there's been nothing. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about back to school, which is just a few weeks away right now. Reaction has been mixed to the province's back to school plan. Students are going to have to wear masks indoors, but they'll be able to take part in things like extracurricular activities, including sports and clubs. Now, the plan, by all stretches of imagination, does not cover all the bases, according to the teachers' unions. Uh, Global's Tina Trujani reports. Mandatory vaccination is not part of the plan for either students or teachers. The nearly 30-page document doesn't contain protocols on how best to manage COVID-19 cases or outbreaks either, and there's no threshold set for when classrooms or schools as a whole would have to be shut down. Classroom sizes won't be changing, and that has also raised concerns about virus spread, especially the more contagious Delta variant. The Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario is calling the plan incomplete and adequate. The Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation says it has concerns about cohorting for the older grades. With quadmesters, students will be surrounded by the same people for the duration of the course, but will still be able to mix with other students in libraries or assemblies or if they leave school grounds. Tina Trajani, Global News. So the impact on students is front of mind for parents and, and concerns, of course, but what about the teachers themselves? I mean, they're part of this process. They were the ones on the front lines. Well, uh, there's a study going on at Brock University right now, which is going to address that. Uh, a couple of different professors, along with the assistance of, uh, of some others, are actually going to be doing a survey uh, to find out how teachers are coping with what's going on with COVID, uh, how they're coping with the new normal now with uh, online learning and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, and, uh, well, it's, it's going to be very insightful, I think, to get that perspective on this. Uh, one of the uh, professors who's involved in this is uh, Danielle Siriana Mulder, an associate professor of child and youth studies at Brock University, and uh, joining us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Professor, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Oh, thank you for having us and for your interest in our work. Well, it's very interesting stuff, and we've talked to a number of teachers' representatives over the last 14 or 15 months, I guess, about this. And uh, I, I can tell you, and I'm sure you've heard the same sorts of things, that uh, a number of teachers uh, who are pretty wrung out right now because of what they've had to go through over the last little while are kind of wondering if they've got a voice, if, if their concerns are being heard. I, I'm getting the sense that what you're going to be doing here with this study is going to address a lot of that. Absolutely. That's one of the things that uh, prompted us to do the study is we weren't hearing teachers' voices. So we were hearing government voices, we were hearing youth voices, everybody else but the teachers themselves who are the ones that have all the responsibility in the classrooms. So we really wanted to highlight and understand what they're going through. Well, and I know that some people in government were rather dismissive of the voices that did rise up. Uh, they were just saying, well, those are just union people and they're just trying to be contrary, uh, which I, I thought was unfortunate to, to take an attitude like that because uh, these are the people that are charged with our, education, our kids' education. They're the ones that are on the front lines, and they're the ones that have had to pivot in situations uh, such as we've been describing here about what has to happen in schools, uh, not just uh, with, with in the classroom stuff, which is in and of itself, Chuck, 
challenging. But, you know, all of a sudden, the, the number of online courses that are available right now, uh, it's a different kind of teaching, as teachers tell me. And it's, it's going to be interesting to get their perspective during your study here about just how this is rolling out and how they feel it's rolling out. Absolutely. We've only just started our study, but already we're hearing from teachers, um, whether they were in the classroom, and we are referring to that in our study as blended education, because even the teachers who primarily taught in person, they were still pivoting to online when everything shut down. So they had multiple experiences. But even those who were in person, they were teaching two, three, four different grades in the same year, because as the numbers of youth shifted, from, you know, parents choosing online and youth versus now they want in the classroom. Uh, a lot of people didn't realize these teachers now are being shuffled, you know, teaching different numbers of students, totally different grades, and with very little notice. I had one teacher that uh, I thought developed a very cool analogy. said it's like the old schoolhouse that we used to hear about back in the turn of the century. There would be one, one classroom, uh, and all grades, one to eight, would be in there. And the teacher was responsible for teaching all of those. And she said, it's a, she said it's very, very difficult to try to focus on this and try to get these students set and then come back over to this group of students here. Uh, we thought we had progressed back to that, but this is almost things like we're going back to the future. Yeah, it's fascinating hearing their stories, and we've only just begun. But even online, hearing about um, from teachers who taught primarily online last year, and it was fascinating because they were telling us stories, because we also have an interview component of our study, where they're literally talking for six to eight hours a day to avatars, never seeing the youth's faces. So they're just talking to these icons, and there was a profound sense of disconnection. Which is understandable, and, and, and it really seems to kind of run contrary to what we have been learning and what we were hoping for our students. I think, you know, with a few exceptions, I, I think there's an argument to be made that we've gravitated more towards individual learning. I mean, you know, we understand now the class sizes of 40 and 45, uh, which weren't that long ago, uh, were not productive, and that we need smaller class sizes so teachers can have that one-to-one. -one. Uh, I'm not so sure that everybody in the ministry understands that, but the teachers certainly do, and I, I, I don't want to get into the politics of this, I guess, and I'm sure you don't this morning anyway, you're the professor, but the voices need to be heard because they're the ones that are going to have the most direct impact on how the system is going to work or not work. Absolutely. And as I said, there's a lot of um, nuances that are happening that, you know, parents and youth, we just don't understand. Like, we need to get that very critical piece of the puzzle so that we can move forward to better support students because I know there's a lot of worries about potential learning gaps. And teachers, I mean, why not harness their experience, all of their uh, training, and get their voices so that we can have a complete picture moving forward? In what you've heard, and I know this is early days in the study, Professor, uh, are there concerns being raised about the, the education environment itself, in other words, the bricks and mortar in the classroom? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's very thought, early days. Thought there might so be, yeah. have a lot to go. Um, but, yes, no, we're certainly starting to hear um, some concerns about that. Absolutely, yes. And by that, I'm talking about the infrastructure. I know that uh, you know the, the education minister, Mr. Lecce, made an announcement the other day about trying to make sure that they had these uh, uh, fax systems are going to be in place, uh, even if they're going to be portable ones, and, and that's gratifying. Uh, I don't know how logistically you know sensible it is to suggest that it's going to be done by the opening of school, but there's that. Uh, there's still concerns. I'm still hearing the same concerns I heard a year and a half or so ago uh, about class sizes uh, and about hygiene within the schools themselves, and I don't know, and I'm getting the sense from a lot of teachers, that they don't know whether or not all those uh, concerns have been addressed. 
Well, that's the thing. It's the high, high level of uncertainty. And, you know, last year there were obviously changes happening constantly, but um, not all of those concerns were met last year. And again, it was a rapidly evolving situation. So now there's uncertainty going into back to school mode for September, whether those are going to be met. So a lot of teachers, at least from what we're hearing, are, you know, they're just waiting nervously to see what kind of environment they're going to be introduced in. Well, even more nervous than before. Uh, talking to one teacher in our neighborhood the other day as, as I was going for my walk, and uh, they said, you know, a year or so ago, uh, when we're, one of those times where they actually tried to go back, uh, you know, we were told, and the, the conventional thinking seemed to be, it's okay, it's, it's not ideal, but, you know, kids really don't get this virus uh, to the same degree that adults do, so we should be okay. Now we're finding out with the Delta variant that an awful lot of kids are starting to get it. I mean, we know that pediatric hospitals are starting to fill up right across uh, the province right now, and you know, I don't necessarily know if they're in dire circumstance of life or death, but they're hospitalized, which means that this can be uh, passed on and this can be spread through kids. And if you're talking about elementary schools, I mean, tell me, you know, people that are under the age of 12, they're not vaccinated yet. So I, I, I can understand the concern a lot of teachers would have. Yeah, no, there's a that from what we're hearing again, early days, but all of the concerns that you've just brought up, we've already heard have been voiced by teachers. And the other thing is like they're charged with students learning. So everyone accepts that. But in order to have a positive learning experience, kids need to feel safe. Teachers need to feel safe because if not, your mind's going to be preoccupied with safety concerns and you're not able to focus on learning math, for example, or science. Mm -hmm. So I think that gets overlooked in the conversations a lot where teachers are charged with kind of, they're, they're the face that represents the classroom and the safety of the classroom. So it's a very heavy burden on the teachers for sure. Uh, Danielle, what's the time frame here? You mentioned the study's already underway. Uh, when do you expect to get it completed and, and released? Yeah, so there's three time points for the surveys, two months apart. So we're hoping to get what we refer to as our baseline sample, so like the complete sample, uh, by mid-fall. And then it should be about four months after that. So early winter, we're hoping to have our results. Well, uh, we're going to stay in touch. Uh, we certainly are interested in, in what you're going to be hearing and, and of the final results of that. And I'm sure there's going to be a, cat, a lot of discussion uh, when these results are released, uh, as you say, a few months from now. Uh, congratulations on the initiative. I know you've got a lot of help down there at Brock with uh, some uh, other students that are helping out and another a number of professors. Uh, and good luck with this. And we'll stay in touch. And hopefully down the road we'll talk about the results. Excellent. Thank you and have a wonderful day. You too. Danielle Siriana Molnar, who is a professor of Child and Youth Services at Brock University with their study, uh, looking to find out teachers' input into this. Glad you're with us today. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML in Hamilton. Uh, disturbing news as you uh, woke up this morning, I'm sure you've heard on the newscast all morning long, uh, about uh, the Chinese court rejecting Robert Schellenberg's appeal against the death penalty. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, one of the two Michaels, Michael Spavor, is also awaiting his verdict. Uh, this has not put that in a very good light either. Joining us to talk about this is Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Elliot, glad you could join us. I wish it was under better circumstances. Indeed, Bill. Good morning. This is, uh, this is troubling. And, you know, the Schellenberg case is, is separate and apart, but uh, we're, we're talking about Canadians that are being incarcerated in, in Chinese prisons right now. Uh, but Schellenberg's is, is, is in and of itself very, very troubling. This is a guy who was convicted of, of drug charges and sentenced to a jail term. And after the Hmong arrest, of course, in Vancouver a few years ago now, all of a sudden they decided to reopen the case and he was given a death sentence. And that was re basically, you know, reestablished and reiterated yesterday. Yes, the uh, 
The two cases should be kept uh, distinct. We are speaking of today's headlines, which is that uh, Robert Schellenberg's case has now been brought forward, and uh, the decision is likely to be uh, pretty harsh for him. The second case, the case of Spavor, Michael Spavor, uh, one of the two Michaels, is a separate and distinct case. The Mm -hmm. fact that they are now linked is interesting. Uh, The first is a drug smuggling case. It goes back a long way. there's a zero-tolerance policy in China about drug smuggling. This isn't aimed at Canada. It's aimed at drug smugglers. They execute drug smugglers, and they've done so in the past, harsh sentences. So this is part of a pattern. But the fact that suddenly uh, Schellenberg and Spavor's names are in the same paragraph suggests that, yes, we are now witnessing a change from what would normally be a a routine and unfortunate case for for this young uh, person whose whose guilt will be you know is, is preordained and when when you're brought to to trial in China you're guilty so he's he's uh, the fact that it was upgraded to a death penalty we can talk about that further but uh, the fact that it's announced now is is the big story along with the fact that it's being linked to Michael Spavor that is big news uh, he had not uh, been in touch, uh, Schellenberg, this is with his lawyer, and they say it was because of COVID, so he was not even allowed to visit him. I guess there have been some uh, letters that went back and forth. I was uh, interested to watch the comments of the, the Canadian ambassador, uh, who is keeping apprised of what's going on here, Elliot, uh, and once again calling you know, for the, the release of, of the two Michaels. But the commutation of the sentence against Schellenberg, not necessarily to overturn this or to set him free, is there, a, is there a, an admission, such as it was, that there might be some level of guilt there with this, but the penalty is too harsh? Yes. The, um, this is now caught up in the intricacies of the Chinese court system. Uh, it doesn't matter what others are now saying. And the intricacies are that he was convicted. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a specialist in this. I'm just picking up this sure. as best I can. But uh, he was arrested. Uh, he was His, his, his interpreter uh, basically turned on him and said that he wasn't uh, just a tourist, which is what he said, but that uh, the, tour- the interpreter said no, he was uh, initially he was smuggling. And then as the charges around Meng Wanzhou were brought forward, the charges against him were changed, that suddenly he was part of an international conspiracy, and then maybe the leader of an international drug smuggling uh, conspiracy. All of that, of course, would elevate the charges in the Chinese court. The fact that it's been uh, changed from one level to another, that is, he was sentenced to 15 years with the possibility of being expelled, convicted and expelled was first the case. Then after that, it was changed to um, he wants to appeal. And his lawyer said, don't appeal, (laughs) you'll be in trouble. He said, I want to appeal. And then it got called up in the Meng Wanzhou uh, miasma, the the political aspect of then entered. The uh, and you mentioned this to us before, but I think it's re- worth repeating for our listeners. Uh, the uh, Chinese courts, a conviction rate is ninety nine percent, and appeals very, very rarely successful. It's a very black and white system, isn't it? Yes. Uh, the if you're brought to trial, you're going to be convicted. The sentencing, however, is still uh, subject to a lot of uh, leeway, depending on. Remember, the court system is an extension of the party. <laughs> yeah. Everything is, in, in, yeah, and therefore the government, but the or the government and the party and so forth. So the court system is there. No, the um, 
in his particular case, since we, we should focus on him, not just the politics of it, this is now going to, as all death penalties do, go up to the highest court in the land, and they apparently have three options. Uh, they can make it, they can just say yes, go ahead. They can make it lighter, and they can, they can change the uh, lower court's decision altogether. So his fate is still not quite known in terms of the details. We are talking about it. Uh, because it's been linked now to a political matter. Normally, I don't think you would find headlines in the paper about a drug smuggling case uh, in China, but because this is now linked to the case of Meng Wanzhou and the two Michaels and the bilateral situation between Canada and China, I think what we're really seeing right now, Bill, is that Meng Wanzhou's trial is at a certain critical point uh, in Vancouver, and the pressure point the pressure points on that trial is what we're seeing now. The, the Chinese are saying, we, we are upping the ante here. And, and our, our ambassador more or less has said the same thing. And, and yet they deny that there's any connection between either Schellenberg's case or the two Michaels. But, but it's not coincidental, Elliot, as you've mentioned many times in the past, that as soon as there is a development in the Meng trial in Vancouver, usually a, a not a good one as far as she's concerned vis-a-vis -vis the extradition, the Chinese respond with something like this. Yes, and I suspect we're seeing a continuation of a very deadly game. They really want Meng Wanzhou released. Um, Canada has said it's in our court system, which is incidentally uh, moving very slowly. I guess that's the nature of court systems, but uh, she's uh, at, a, at another inflection point in the trial. This is, uh, sorry, it's not in this, I want to emphasize this. It's not a trial. It's a hearing yeah. on whether she should be sent to the United States honoring an extradition request by the United States, and then a trial would be held. And a lot of the material that her lawyers, her very able team of lawyers, is bringing before a judge in Vancouver is, uh, people are now saying, who specialize in this, well, everything she's bringing is, is suitable for trial, but none of it's actually suitable for the hearing. So she's bringing up things that would be, um, that would be perhaps germane in a trial once a trial is held. She's trying to get out of going to a trial. She wants to be freed. And we should also emphasize, since this is really all about perhaps the politics of Meng Wanzhou and the two Michaels and, and Robert Schellenberg and bilateral relations, one possibility is that she will, in fact, win her court case. People, you and I have talked about this for a very long time now. Mm -hmm. how, how is this going to turn out? She could win her case. She's alleging, her lawyers are alleging, that the United States has... Uh, spoiled the process, that they've tainted the process, that it was an illegal request, in effect, that she was being held. And this is the interesting term. She's now, her lawyers are now saying, she's the one who's been held hostage <laughs> to Donald Trump's ambitions. And he's made it clear, Donald Trump, uh, several times, that, oh, yeah, he, he, would, he would deal her away uh, in order to get a trade deal. At that point, they were, he was after a big trade deal with China. So the fact that the United States president has indicated there might be a political angle to her, um, to the request to send her to trial, and that he would deal it away. That's now being um, brought forward as, as a taint of process in Canada, and therefore the case should be dismissed. We'll have to see how the court handles that. Absolutely. Uh, we're just about out of, well, we are out of time, and we just want to remind our listeners, I'll be talking about the two Michaels and, of course, about Schellenberg's situation, but uh, we should not uh, be... Uh, 
forgetting the situation, by last count, there are over 200 Canadians who are incarcerated in various capacities in China. Including Hussein Chalil, we should remember. Exactly, we have a Uyghur exactly. Canadian there, and our two Michaels are in jail. And the biggest un- takeaway from today's story, very quickly, is that the trial of Spavor may now, the Spavor, one of the two Michaels cases now being brought forward, that's headlines, that's news. Mm-hmm. Elliot Tepper, uh, frustrating day today, very frustrating day, but uh, and, and we went waiting for the other shoe to drop, I guess, and we'll certainly talk about it then. Thanks so much for this, Elliot. Oh, you're very welcome, Bill. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, I don't need to remind you, it's been a year of extreme weather forecasts uh, right across Canada and some ugly, ugly weather and, uh, well, environmental issues that we're dealing with. And as the impacts of climate change become more apparent, a new report is pointing the finger of blame. United Nations bombshell report says that we are, well, to use their words, code red for humanity, and we're responsible for it. Global's Alice Barr has the details. As wildfires scorch the western U.S. and the east prepares for another punishing storm season, the United Nations issuing a grim report warning climate change is accelerating. Recent changes in the climate are widespread, rapid, and intensifying, unprecedented in thousands of years. The authors say a hotter future leading to warmer oceans and rising sea levels is now inevitable. But they stress there is still a small window to act and limit extreme weather from heat waves to flooding and drought. If we're able to stabilize greenhouse gas emissions and eventually lower warming in the years to come, I'm hoping I get a chance to see this in my lifetime. The report lays out the strongest case yet for human-caused global warming and urges a coordinated international effort starting now to sharply cut emissions and head off the most devastating effects. Well, it's a, it's a, a damning report and something that we need to pay attention to. Uh, mind you, the, you know the, the deniers are still out there, and we've heard from them over the last 24 hours since this report came out as well. Joining us to talk about this, uh, Kent Moore. Kent Moore is a professor of atmospheric physics at the University of Toronto. Professor, uh, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. I've got, I guess, the initial question for you here is I've read the highlights of the report, and one of one of the things I found most troubling is there are some things that they actually say, you know what, we can't even fix this now. It's that bad. There are certain elements, and we're going to get into those in a few minutes. Yet uh, you look on social media, and there are the deniers once again saying, oh, come on, we've always had hot weather. We've always had wildfires. It happens from time to time, and it's happening now, uh, which begs the question, when will the lesson be learned here, Professor? I don't know. I mean, it's it's a challenging problem, and it, it and it's because there is lots of variability in the system. So sure, we've had you know we've had heat waves in the past, we've had wildfires in the past, but when you look at that kind of longer record, and we're seeing you know every year wildfires happening now, hundred year events that is an event that should have happened once every hundred years now occurring every few years, it becomes harder and harder to sort of make the argument that this is just you know natural variability. So I think that's the the way to think about it is that, yeah, we've had extreme events in the past and we'll always have them, but we're having more of them now and the magnitude of the event is much higher than in the past. And, and I think that's one of the wild cards here that maybe a lot of people don't consider. You just talked about it. It's, it's the, the, the magnitude, the, the times that happen. I can remember this go back when I was on Hamilton City Council some years ago, and, and we had a flood, a huge, huge rainstorm, uh, and they said, well, this is what they call a 100-year storm, something of this magnitude, and uh, you know, it only happens about once every 100 years. Well, they happen once a summer now, if not maybe more than that. Uh, you know, that, that should be a wake-up call to us. 
I think so. I mean, you know, uh, I study this for a living, and I just every year I just see more and more changes to the climate system. And, uh, you know, we, we acknowledge there's variability in the system, but, you know, when you look at um, 30 or 40 years, you know, let's say, let's look at sea ice data in the Arctic. You know, sure, there's some years there's more ice, some years there's less, but over a 40-year period, the amount of ice covers declined by 50%. So it's hard to argue that's just things bouncing around. Same thing with temperatures. Temperatures, you know, in the GTA have increased by about one and a half or two degrees over the last, uh, you know, 40 years or so. And again, you know, that's not saying you have some cold summers and some warm summers, but that's year over year. If you go back and look at the climate 40 years ago, we're about two degrees warmer than we were. And so, again, it's hard to argue. You're just looking at fluctuations. There's a trend there, and that trend is climate change. Let's develop, and again, we're talking in August, and if this report had come out in, in January, we'd get a different take from some of the deniers here because they say, oh, come on, it's minus 20 outside. What do you mean the, glo- the globe is warming? Uh, but global warming and the impacts of it, Professor, from what I understand, means more extreme temperatures. In other words, the winters are going to be more harsh, the summers are going to be more harsh. Well, that's a good question about the winters. So um, we have been experiencing some harsher winters uh, recently in the, you know, GTA, you know, these, the polar vortex. Yeah. And, and so that's a bit paradoxical because, you know, if the climate is warming, and in fact, winter temperatures have warmed as well in the GTA. Uh, you know, for instance, I can remember, you know, back 30, 40 years ago, we didn't have as many kind of freezing rain events, let's say, in the mm-hmm. winter as, as now. We have them all the time. So the average temperatures have warmed in the winter. But what's happening is that the, the changes, especially in the Arctic, to the climate have led to instances where this really cold air from the Arctic can penetrate farther south than it used to be. And so, so again, this is a bit paradoxical. So on average, the winters are warming, but we are getting these extremely cold polar vortex events, which we didn't usually get as, as often. And again, this is a kind of process of, of the changing climate. So everything you know so so again uh you know we talk about global warming we should probably talk about climate change or you know because really the climate is changing and that those changes aren't uniform the whole earth isn't warming up and in fact the whole earth isn't warming up at the same rate if you go into the arctic you know the warming is about double what it is in mid-latitudes so the arctic is warming much faster than than where we live in the extra tropics or the mid-latitudes. And, for instance, in the tropics, the, the, the trends aren't as large as, as well. So, you know, so global warming is not a homogeneous thing. The whole Earth isn't warming up. And we can have these rather odd instances where even, you know, where, say, the average temperature in the winter is getting higher, we are getting some extreme events where, in fact, the temperatures are actually much colder. Let's address the idea of temperature because it's, I think, a, uh, something that gets lost on an awful lot of people. And the report talked about this, uh, about, as you say, average mean temperatures. And they said that uh, uh, the world temperature has gone up 1.1 degrees Celsius or 2 degrees Fahrenheit in the past century and a half, uh, which in some people's minds, Professor, is insignificant. 1.1 degree, what's the big deal? Uh, what are the impacts of, of that in- increase, as, as insignificant as some people might think it is? Well, on, on the one hand, it is insignificant because you look at the what's the temperature change between you know night and night and day in the summer. It's probably ten degrees, maybe fifteen degrees, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a question of perspective. So uh, you know, so if you think about it, so say you know the days are warmer than the than the nights, but on average that averages out, right? So 
you know, on, on, on average, there's no change in the temperature. So these, but what we're seeing is a background change. So one, one way to think about it is that, you know, uh, you know, and this happens in the GTA, our winter temperatures are around freezing, you know, plus or minus, right? Mm-hmm. And you, you know, if it's minus two degrees, then that's quite pleasant because everything is frozen and, you know, if it goes to two degrees, everything turns to, to slush. Right? So we're talking about very, very small changes that can lead to very, very large impacts. And so that's one way to think about climate change is that, you know, around zero, it makes a big difference whether it's plus or plus or minus because either it's frozen or it's not frozen. Um, and the other way to think about it is that think about it as sort of like I think sea level rise is a good analogy perhaps for temperature. So, you know, the sea level is rising, right? And... Um, so what this means is that if you have a dock, let's say, or even tides maybe, you know, at low tide, you know, the water level is much lower than at high tide. It may only be a, maybe maybe a meter or so, but that makes a big difference because you're clearly changing the background level. And so with temperature, it's true, you know, nights are colder than the days and the winters are colder than the summers. But what we're saying is on average, the summers are warmer by one degree, and on average, the winters are colder, are warmer by one degree as well. So we're sort of changing the background level, and and that can have a significant effect. If we had a heat wave, which, let's say, 30 years ago might have had a maximum temperature of, let's say, 32 degrees, that heat wave will now have a maximum temperature of, say, 30, 33 degrees, okay? So again, that one degree is not much of a difference, but if you're a person who has some, you know, uh, has some health conditions, that one degree might make a big difference. So climate is about averages, and, and, a, and a one degree over, let's say, 30 or 40 years is quite significant because, again, it's shifting the climate into a warmer state. And as we shift into that warmer state, we tend to have just uh, less really cold events. And that's, again, what we're sort of seeing, especially during the winter time. We're not seeing, at least on average, as many cold events as we used to. One of the more contentious issues here that was addressed in the report, as you know, uh, Professor, uh, was culpability, because there are always and always has been a debate uh, about you know whether or not fossil fuels are a main contributor to this. I mean, I think the report here is pretty clear on how they feel things are going, and they said they've presented a body of evidence to, to substantiate that. Yet there are still some who say, well, look at you know we've just got to learn to get along with this, and, and fossil fuels are going to be with us for quite some time. Uh, mind you, governments seem to have got the message now. Because we seem to be moving a lot more toward electric vehicles, but but what, let's talk about that. I mean, I, I, I'm not a scientist. I, I, I don't have everywhere near the expertise uh, that people like yourself do in a situation. But common sense tells me that if we keep dumping pollutants into our atmosphere, it's, it's got to have some sort of a negative effect eventually. And and that, that seems to be what's happening here. I mean, that seems pretty elementary. Yeah, you know, so the the first scientist who essentially investigated how uh, radiation interacts with gases. Um, this was back in the 1870s. He realized that uh, gases like carbon dioxide absorb thermal radiation. That's the radiation that the Earth gives off. And with that one experiment that he did, he recognized the greenhouse effect existed because he actually said that if we didn't have carbon dioxide in, in the atmosphere, the Earth would be much colder than it is. And that's, in fact, true. If, if you essentially take all the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, and, of course, you know, uh, most of it is natural. I mean, there's a natural level of CO2 in the atmosphere. If that CO2 is removed, the average temperature of the Earth would be minus 18 degrees Celsius. It would be frozen. We would be a frozen Earth. We couldn't exist. 
So there's a background level of CO2 in the atmosphere, which is crucial for our existence. And, and if we didn't have that CO2, we wouldn't be here. What we're worried about is the additional CO2 that we're adding onto that background. So pre-industrial levels of CO2, before we started burning fossil fuels, the levels were at 270 parts per billion. Now we're about 400. Okay, so we're at 400. We've increased it by maybe 25%. And we've seen a warming, as you said, 1.2 degrees or so since 1850. And so that that warming uh, is directly attributable to the presence of CO2 in, in the atmosphere. Um, this was, I identified the first experiment ever to look at this, figured this out. Uh, people have been doing, you know, running climate models for 40 years now. And the climate models, the first ones we ran 40 years ago, which probably were simpler than a lot of the apps on your cell phone, still gave the same answer that we get today. If you increase CO2 in the atmosphere, you're going to warm the, the planet up. So that science is sort of, uh, there's no debate on, on, on that. There's a direct link between CO2 and the warming. It doesn't explain everything, but it's a direct link there. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I just find it kind of frustrating when people still debate that point, is that, uh, you know, we continue to, to, to burn fossil fuels, CO2 levels go up in the atmosphere, and there's warming. And we have, you know, uh, we have 150 years of data that show that. And I just, you know, to me, it's just amazing that people can still debate that simple point. What do we do about it is another question. Because I understand totally how difficult it is to transition out of our current, you know, carbon-based economy into something greener. But the one thing that the report made clear, and this is something which hasn't been, this is the sixth, I mean, there's been six of these reports Mm -hmm. by the IPCC. And one thing which is really dramatically different about this one is that they give a real roadmap. They say we have about 20 years to get this under control. And if we don't, then we'll go above the 1.5 degrees C, which most people think will lead to irreversible changes. And and so that's pretty pretty you know pretty firm. I mean, the first uh, climate, UN climate conference was in 1992 in Rio. Okay, and again, the science was pretty much decided even then. We've dithered since 1992, right? If we had started in 1992, we would have had 50 years to transition right to a decarbonized economy. Now we have 20 years. Okay, so. I think the science is clear. Uh, it's difficult. I don't. I don't. I don't underestimate how difficult it is to do that. But if we don't, we're going to end up in a situation where you know our climate is much more severe than it is now. There'll be incredible stresses on ecosystems. Our standard of living will be will decline, frankly, because we won't have access, you know, to to the kind of wonderful environments we have. We have higher sea levels. People have their basements flooding more often, so we we'll have to invest, you know, in infrastructure to manage the, you know, the higher rainfall events in the summer. So there's a huge bunch of costs that we're going to have to, to, to either we either deal with it now or we deal with it in the future. And as I think we know, putting things off always leads to kind of higher costs in the future. So even from an economic perspective, if we don't start moving now, uh, the costs are going to be much much higher in the future. Think about Vancouver Airport. It's, it's at sea level. How much infrastructure is invested in that airport? Billions and billions of dollars. Okay. How much is it going to cost to build levees around or extend the levees around Vancouver Airport so that it doesn't get flooded? Huge cost. Let me ask you. Yeah. 
I, I got a couple of minutes left here, but I want, yeah. I just and I, I, this is probably opening up to another 25 minutes of discussion, but I just want to get a quick view of this. Uh, one of the, the first movies I think they tried to address this was Al Gore's movie back in 2006, The Inconvenient Truth, which actually won some awards. It was dismissed by an awful lot of people, you know, because remember, there's a scene about New York City streets being flooded because of rising ocean levels and the wildfires, which, by the way, are happening these days. But when a lot of people were able to, to say, look, it, it's not going to be that extreme. Those are worst case scenarios. Did that give us a false sense of security that, okay, that's terrible, but it's not really going to happen to us? Uh, that's that's uh, that's science fiction. Uh, and it did, because you mentioned about the dithering, and th that's a political decision. That's not an environmental decision that a lot of governments made to say, okay, we're going to go about this slowly because uh, we don't want to get people angry at us. And it, are, are we smarter now that we can accelerate that program? I think we know more. So, you know, that movie came out almost, you know, 15 years ago, and there's 15 yeah. years of more science. And I think, you know, there, I, I, you know, scientists are conservative, and I think we don't want to, you know, say that, you know, you know, every year there'll be a wildfire or, you know, or whatever, because the science probably didn't say that. But with the additional 15 years of data, that is unfortunately that what's actually happening. So I think we were, you know, being conservative as, as scientists, not wanting to oversell, right? You don't want to oversell. You don't want to undersell either. You want to find the medium. But I don't think you want to get way out in front of things. And, and frankly, the other, I mean, the challenge that I have is that, you know, people call me up when there's been a bad hurricane and they say, you know, was that climate change? And it's really, really hard to attribute a single event to climate change because climate is all about averages. But, you know, we've, now got enough data, you know, that we can now start saying, yeah, some of these extreme events actually are climate related. So that's just a change from our increase in our knowledge that now we can make statements that we couldn't make 15 years ago. Should we have made those those uh, statements? Had we made those statements, people would have said, oh, you're just a fear monger, right? Mm -hmm. It's not happening. So I think it's a fine line that this science has to tread between fear mongering and provided the best knowledge that we have. Even back 15 years ago, the worst case scenarios probably were, you know, wildfires happening all the time. But there wasn't enough data really to kind of say that is probably, you know, the, the chance of that happening was low. Now the chance of that happening is quite higher. And that's the other thing about this report is this report is a lot more confident in its statements. And that's, again, just because the science is more confident now. And so scientists are just more willing to say, yeah, with a high degree of confidence, you know, humans have, you know, severely impacted the climate through things like wildfires, you know, floods, heat waves, et cetera. And that's something that as, as, as scientists we were unwilling to do a few years ago because the data didn't really support it. Uh, Professor, great to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning. It's my pleasure, and thank you for reaching out. Take care. Professor Kent Moore, Atmospheric Physics uh, at the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.